We're uh, continuing our summer series. Next to last week, we wrap up next week. Because summer's wrapping up. How did that happen? (laughs) Went quickly. Uh, We're continuing our series called Knowing God by Name. And it's uh, been a series through the Old Testament names of God, some of them at least. And um, throughout the series, we've been emphasizing kind of the same line that knowing about God is religion, but knowing God is life. Jesus said it. Now, this is eternal life, he said, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus prayed that in his kind of great high priestly prayer in John 17. And uh, the names for God used in scripture reveal uh, something of who God is or what God does on behalf of his people. And you know, God is in the business of making himself known to people. Ours is a, a, a faith based on revelation, not reason. It's not that we check our, our brains at the door, uh, devalue reason. It's just that we don't place our trust in our own ability to figure things out. We know that if God is going to be known, it will be because God reveals himself to people. That's the heart of the faith, revelation. And gladly, God's in that business, as is Jesus. Look at what Jesus said. Again, he's praying this to God. I have made you known to them, O God, and will continue to make you known to them. So the ongoing ministry of Jesus, advanced in our day by the Holy Spirit, is God being made known to us. This, This is what God does. So we've been, we've been looking also at the different names of God. There are, again, quickly, three foundational names of God, Yahweh, Adonai, and Elohim. And you can kind of see there, if it's all capitals in the English Lord, that's Yahweh in your Bible. If it's capital L, small O-R-D, that's Adonai. And then God usually means Elohim, or what was in the text. And the top of those, Yahweh, this is God's actual name, the personal name of God. And many of the compound names that come later on use the personal name of God plus something that God does on our behalf. And today's name is one of those. Uh, Yahweh Tzidkenu, or the Lord our righteousness. That's the name. It appears just two times in scripture, both in Jeremiah, once in Jeremiah 23 and once in Jeremiah 33. Uh, But let's read the portion from Jeremiah 23 as as we look today. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's the name right there at the end, obviously, the Lord, our righteous Savior, Yahweh Tzidkenu. Um, well, as, as always, you know, context is everything. Background is important. So not, not, not a lot, but just a little history to understand the spiritual point of this name. Uh, If you've ever read Jeremiah, you know that Jeremiah is not necessarily a happy book. There's a lot going on in in this book. Uh, Now, there's hope in it, no doubt, 
but there's also a lot of uh, the prophet kind of calling out bad behavior, pronouncing judgment. There's, there's a lot of that. When I was a brand new Christian, I was at a faith reformed church up in Traverse City, Michigan, and went to a Bible study called the Bethel Bible Series. It was a leadership thing. Some of you who've been around the church a little longer might remember it. I did the two-year leadership version, and it was a great investment. It was my first serious study of the scriptures. And I remember there were some pictures that accompanied different books of the Bible. And uh, some of the pictures for the prophetic books always had flags on them. There was a black flag for uh, kind of indicating pronouncements of doom and judgment and things like that, and a, and a white flag for pronouncements of hope. And some prophets were just black flag prophets. Some prophets were just white flag prophets. Some prophets were both black and white flags. And Jeremiah had black flags and, and white flags. Jeremiah's ministry began during the reign of King Josiah, uh, of Judah, King Josiah was a really good king. You, you, you can read about it in the Bible. He reigned over Judah from uh, 641 BC to 610 BC. And the reforms that he made, very positive reforms, are recorded in Scripture. He kind of undid the stuff of his predecessors, Manasseh and Ammon, and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Right? Now, the important historical point is that in 722 BC, so about 100 years prior to Josiah's reign, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell. So the way biblical history goes, there was Solomon, and then during, uh, after Solomon's reign, the, the kingdom was divided into north and south. The northern kingdom fell in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, Judah, kept going. So during King Josiah's reign, Judah remembered the 100th anniversary of the fall of the northern kingdom. It was right in the middle of that. But right after King Josiah died, his successors derailed all the reforms he made. And as the often repeated phrase goes, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So there is just the whipsaw, right? It just goes back and forth and back and forth. And, and it, it, it went bad. It went really bad. It was... Uh, the, the priests were setting up idols in the temple. There was violence, oppression, political intrigue, unrest. It, the whole thing just turned away from God. And later in Jeremiah, Jeremiah summed up that whole experience in this way. They turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. And so as it goes so often... Uh, if we are so very persistent in turning away from God, God allows us to do that. So finally the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel. So judgment was coming on the southern kingdom. And Jeremiah was the one to bring that message to the people. He said that Babylon would be God's instrument of judgment against Judah and that Judah would go into captivity. Well, this is all the black flag stuff, Right? But if that was the end of the story, then God's purposes and, and promises would remain unfulfilled. So in the midst of all the unrighteousness of Judah, as bad as it was, the terrible kings who followed Josiah and the coming judgment in, in the hands of Babylon, right in the middle of all that, God speaks the words we read today in scripture. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. I mean, there, there will be a day 
means so much of life is imagining a hopeful future, right? And this is the hopeful future for Judah, even though they're heading into, into judgment. There will be a day, a righteous branch, meaning a king, uh, will be raised up who will reign with wisdom and righteousness. Uh, the subtext is as, as opposed to the yahoos that were leading the show at that time. Right? There, there will be a leader who leads with righteousness and justice, will do the right thing, will act justly. That, that's the promise. And during that king's reign, Judah will be saved, rescued, will live in safety, free from fear. So from a Jewish perspective, we're cruising right along here, right? This is business as usual for Jewish folks. Uh, Okay, yep, life's a mess right now, but God has promised to raise up a a king. This is the Messiah, right, in in the line of the great King David. Yep, we get it. This is good. The, The promised Messiah, the king who will make everything right again, kind of like David did. Yep, we're good. Got it. Check, check, and check. But then... Jeremiah drops an absolute bomb on them. He says, uh, hey, hey, everybody, I just, I, I just kind of want to give you a, a heads up. It, it would be important for you to know this. You know, the, the name of that coming king, it, it, his name's kind of important. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteous Savior. Meaning, the coming king's name will be Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. To quote the inimitable Wayne from Wayne's World, excuse me, a baking powder? Every Jewish person who heard this message was dumbstruck. Dumbstruck. What did you just say, Jeremiah? Because I, I think I just heard you say that the Messiah will be Yahweh himself. It, is that what you just said? Jeremiah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what God told me to tell you. The coming king, the Messiah, will be Yahweh Tzidkenu. Now, there's, there's a whole lot going on here, but let's just focus on two things, the Yahweh part and the Tzidkenu part. First, the Yahweh part. Talk about clear Trinitarian theology in the Old Testament. It does not get any clearer than this. The promised Messiah will be God himself, Yahweh. The righteous branch, the coming king, will be Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. See, the promise of this statement is that God would come himself to make things right again. And and that leads into the second thing going on here, the Tzidkenu part, because the promise is not only that God would come to us himself to make things right again, the promise is that God would come to us himself to make us right again. To make us righteous. Now you might have caught this. The NIV renders this name of God the Lord our righteous Savior, not the Lord our righteousness. You might have noticed that as we read. The reason for this is that this name for God 
means that God is righteous, yes, but it means more than that. It has the implication not only that God is righteous, but that God will become our righteousness. That somehow, in some way, God's perfect righteousness will become ours. Thus, the NIV is rendering our righteous Savior. It's trying to capture uh, God's application of his righteousness to people as a definition of what it means to be saved. I mean, it, it, this is crystal clear. It's right in the text. I mean, it, it's crystal clear. In sharing this message with Jeremiah, God says to the world, I will come to you myself to make you righteous like me. That's the promise. So though Christmas didn't exist back then, this was the promise that there would be a Christmas someday, that Christmas would happen, that God himself would enter human affairs to rule as a just king, to make all things right again by making people righteous again. Make, making us righteous. You know, what, what does this even mean? What, what is righteousness? Do you know... Uh, do you know C.S. Lewis's uh, little sci-fi work, The Space Trilogy? Who has read that? Space Trilogy? Okay, you need to read it. You really need to. I keep telling Crystal that. And she's like, I don't like sci-fi. I'm like, no, you got to read this. It's so good. So his, his uh, there's, there's a, uh, how do you make this simple? In, in the first book, uh, C.S. Lewis in, introduces the primary character who's an English a university professor uh, who's kidnapped by a couple mad scientist types who take him to Mars, where he is uh, to be offered presumably as a sacrifice to the natives. So when he lands on Mars, he's terrified by the natives, but then he goes on to find out that they're actually, they're pretty decent. They're great, great people and, and actually quite spiritually tuned to their creator. And as the story progresses, uh, the main character gets the chance to talk to the kind of the angel overseer of Mars. And the angel overseer tells him that the whole universe is wondering about Earth because Earth is covered in this cloud and it's being, being, being ruled by the bent one. And, you know, the, the main character, uh, who very intriguingly is named Ransom, right? um, starts to figure that the earth is ruled by the bent one and all of us who live on earth are bent. So he went on to describe these two mad scientist types who took him to Mars as, as bent creatures. They're, they're bent, broken, not the way they're supposed to be. And this idea of straight versus bent is, is the concept of, of biblical righteousness. I mean, the, the, the name for the day, Yahweh Tzidkenu, the, the Tzidkenu part, obviously it's Hebrew, it comes from the Hebrew word tzedek, which literally means stiff or straight. And, and applied spiritually to people, it means, uh, you know, straight as in not broken. Uh, stiff as in whole, as in, as in never having been not whole. That, 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 that kind of, of thing writes one commentator, there's certainly no more significant word in the Old Testament. Certainly no more significant word in the Old Testament. It's used hundreds of times in scripture in many different ways. It, it basically 
has to do with God's dealing with human beings under the ideas of, of righteousness, justice, and acquittal. There's really no single English word that does it justice. It can mean right, righteous, righteousness, just, justify, and to declare innocent. The concept of righteousness, biblically speaking, is really best understood by looking at who God is, by seeing righteousness displayed in God. Psalm Psalm 129 says this, but the Lord is righteous. Literally, this verse says, Yahweh is a tzaddik. Yahweh is a righteous one. God God is righteous or literally straight in the sense of being perfectly unbroken. There's nothing in God that is bent or off or not the way it's supposed to be. God is without any need of fixing or correcting. Nothing in God needs to be set aright because nothing in God is amiss. The Lord is righteous. That's the biblical concept of righteousness. So if in that sense, God is straight, then we human beings are bent. Bent by sin, that is. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And a big part of the glory of God is that God is not, never has been, nor ever will be bent. God is perfect and perfectly righteous. We aren't, no human being is. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. We're bent and need to be fixed. And that's what Yahweh Tzidkenu came to do when he showed up on earth as Jesus. And look at this from the New Testament. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That, That word correcting in that verse Uh, implies setting something straight that has been broken. I was my son Jack's age, you know, summer before entering second grade when I broke my arm trying a big kid's jump on my bike. My green Schwinn banana seat cruiser bike, that is, with handlebars like this. Now, I don't mind saying it was a killer jump. I mean, it was a strong effort. It was, it was good. I just didn't quite carry the pit on the far side of the ramp. And the front wheel went down and stuck in the pit, and I went right over those big motorcycle handlebars and ended up with my right forearm bent at a 45-degree angle. My arm went, boop, boop, boop. It looked like an upside-down J. Sorry if that's way too much information. <laughs> um, obviously, I end up in the emergency room, and the ortho doc, who was named, no joke, Dr. Crunch, <laughs> played a trick on me. They had given me some kind of sedative, but I was awake, and my parents had been taken out of the room. He was standing on my right side, and he said, Hey, what's that? Pointed that way, and I went, Huh? And he went, I mean, biblically speaking, (laughs) he corrected my arm. That's literally what the word means. And in my loopy second grade uh, self, I responded with, hey, it's straight again. (laughs) 
<laughs> Jesus makes bent people straight again. Jesus makes bent people straight again. And just like the orthodox had to grab my arm and correct the problem, Jesus had to do something. Friends, don't live under any illusion. When Christians talk about being forgiven and, and atonement and Jesus you know, being, being made right with God, th- this is not the equivalent of a heavenly bank teller having compassion on you and simply pressing the button on the keyboard to make your ridiculous fee go away. Something had to happen because the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. God will never, ever just press the button on the keyboard and make the fee go away as if it never mattered in the first place. Because the fee does matter. Because we are guilty. See, the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament spoke of the significance of sin, the reality of our bentness, and the need to do something about it. Early on, the Israelites had the tabernacle before the temple was built, you know, this portable thing that they carried around. And and the entire community was aware of the offerings. There were instructions to give offerings throughout the day. I mean, they, they smelled it. You lived in this camp and you could always smell the offering being made at the tabernacle. It was a a daily experiential reality that we're bent and something needs to be done to make us straight again. Israel experienced that, but they also understood that a sacrifice for sin does not in itself cleanse the sinner. This is really important now. The sacrifice in itself does not cleanse the sinner. To be freed not only from the penalty of sin, but the guilt of sin, the innocence and purity of the sacrifice must be credited to the sinner. Please hear this. It is really, really important because some people understand the gospel is just the first part. Jesus died and we're good. Jesus did die, and if we're in Christ, we are good, but not just because he died, but because his perfect innocence and purity was credited to us. Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. See, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this name of God, Yahweh Sidkenu, in New Testament speak. It's, it's what Jesus did on our behalf, right? He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord our righteousness, the Lord who makes us righteous. This, friends, is very simply the gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, for it is written the righteous will live by faith. The gospel is simply the story of Yahweh Sidkenu doing what he promised to do long ago to become our righteousness. 
It is because of God that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I mean, this is, this is everything, right? If you're a follower of Christ, I hope this is generative in your heart. I hope you're saying, yes, that is, that, this is the main event, the big ticket item. This is everything. This transaction, right? It's not just that God uh, came to us in Jesus and died on the cross to forgive us of our sin in the past where we've got to keep ourselves clean in the future, He came to forgive us of all of our sin across time and to deposit into our account a perfect righteousness also across time. This is the thing. I I love the way Tim Keller puts it. That in the gospel, God applies to us the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus. To put it in word processing terms, you know, you've got the split screen, your resume and Jesus' resume. This is the great copy and paste. You copy Jesus' perfect resume of performance and paste it over all your stuff. This is the gospel, right? It's not up to us. Gladly, because we can't even come close to doing it. Right? The, the way we access this is simply through faith or, or trust. That's what that means. Right? I kind of wondered about this as an early believer when people talked about receiving Christ into your heart or giving your life to, to Jesus. I, I, if you think about that and try to take on the mindset of a person who is not a Christian and hasn't lived in these circles and, nor who knows any of the assumptions that go with any of those phrases, you start to realize how ridiculous they actually sound when you're speaking to someone who has no idea what you're talking about. So here I I had absolutely no concept of the faith and somebody says, you've got to let Jesus into your heart. Uh, Okay, what what does that look like? What, What are you talking about? What Christians are talking about is a transfer of trust. I, I saw an illustration. So I'm, I'm trusting my legs now. I'm trusting the organ now. Right? If the organ suddenly moved, I'm, I don't think I could probably catch myself, right? This is, what, this is the, the perpetual invitation of God in Christ. To, whatever it looks like inside of you, to do this on Jesus, to rely upon Jesus, to trust Jesus, not just to put some of your weight on Jesus, to go all in, Right, here we go. Or if it moves, I'm definitely going down. That's it. <laughs> Jesus doesn't move. <laughs> <laughs> but you get it, right? It's trust. That, that's the invitation, to trust God. And then as you do that, um, looking back, you realize that even that trust was a gift. That God even drew you to that and empowered all of that. The the scripture says that very clearly. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So our, our action 
is to place our trust in Christ. That's what we do. And then when you look back, you realize that God was helping you all along the way and doing the work for you in that regard. So the good news is you don't have to straighten yourself out before you come to God. Uh, You really can't. None of us can. God is in the business of making whole that which is broken, straightening that which is bent, you know, realigning the, the thing that needs to be corrected spiritually, really in every way in us. Friends, believe it. Jesus makes bent people straight again. Yahweh Tzidkenu. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, you are good and we bless you. Uh, Thank you for revealing long ago your good intention to um, apply to us the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus. And we have to believe, God, that you did this, you do this, not because you have to, but because you want to. Because you want us back. So Lord, today pour out your Holy Spirit upon us if there uh, remains in us any barrier to your good work in us. Please remove that. God, bring it to light so that we can present it to you that it might be taken away. Uh, We love you, O Lord, our righteousness. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.